The headline read, It's not the void they hoped it would be. That was across the Richmond Times. The article opened this way, After 12 hours of work Thursday, and after 19 granite blocks weighing up to 8,000 pounds were removed from the pedestal, no one could locate the time capsule that is believed to exist there right in the middle of Monument Avenue. Of course, that was the time capsule supposedly supposed to be under Robert E. Lee's statue. But they never found it. The historians earlier on had conducted radar tests on the pedestal that showed a void in the northeastern corner, the ideal spot to put one of these time capsules. And yet, as there was over, I think it was a day and a half of searching, the radars, the digging, the man hours, the construction, or destruction, and after all that, nothing. They came up empty-handed. See, a news article from 1887 1887, said there was a capsule with some 60 tokens in it put there in the pedestal, uh, or mainly had Confederate memorabilia. And one Jamestown historian at the, at the site just recently noted that such things like time capsules, they're made to be found. So again, if it was to be found, if it was there, it should have been found. And yet, even though it all looked so promising, they came up empty, they had nothing. Now, tragically, to turn it to ourselves, did you realize that one's so-called worship to God can be like this? That it can look good, it can look very promising and sincere, it can look pure on the outside, that is from afar, but inside, when you get up close, it's corrupt, it's empty, it's just a facade. You go around behind it, and there's nothing there. There's no real heart of worship. It's just play acting. Or better said, you go behind the facade and you do find something there. It's not nothing, just whatever you find. It's not good. It's a corrupted and ruined worship. King Jesus, as he comes to town, into Jerusalem, and he comes to us via his word this morning by his spirit, he comes to confront and purify your worship. And namely, that you would keep yourself from corrupted worship. This is what he comes in his word to do, to expose our hearts, to get beyond the veneer, to get to the core. Where does our heart rest with God? So we need to be ready to hear from Jesus. And this is not the time to double down and harden yourself against him. This is the time, Lord, make me pliable. Lord, make me humble. Make me able to hear your word into my heart. Make me be, if I need conviction, may I be convicted. For it's the humble who get grace. It's those who ask for mercy that get it, but the merciless will find none. Oh, may he keep us from such corrupted worship. What we'll find is four vignettes or little episodes again, and in each one we find four kinds of corrupted worship that we need to guard ourselves from, that Jesus warns us against. And the first one is this, is superficial worship, verses 12 and 13. So we noted last time as the triumphal entry happened, Jesus came into town perhaps as not many would expect. He's coming, they suppose, to make war with the Romans. And if so, you would expect him to ride a war horse, to take over the Romans and take them down. Yet, of course, he doesn't ride on a war horse. According to Zechariah 9, he came humble, that is, on a donkey. He comes bringing peace. Yet, as he comes bringing peace and riding to town, we find very quickly in the ensuing chapters that fall out of Matthew's gospel 
Yes, he brings peace, but the same way he brings peace because he's making war. But he's not making war with who you thought. He's not making war with the Romans. He's not picking his fight, so to speak, yet with them. He's starting right at temple headquarters, worship headquarters, and he's dealing with the worship of his people. He's calling them to the carpet for their superficial religion, for their empty rituals. So that's where we pick it up. Matthew 21, verse 12. Let's see it. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I mean, this was quite a scene. Looking at this, you have to say, whoa, Jesus, tell me how you really feel about all this. It's pretty obvious. I mean, it seems out of character, doesn't it? It's like, well, who invited angry Jesus to come in here? John's gospel tells us, though, that this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. Remember, we're in the last week of his earthly ministry, but he did this at the very beginning of his public ministry three years ago. John's gospel that's, tells us that's how Jesus begins. He makes a whip and he drives out all of those in the temple and he turns over tables, again, just like this event. But now, three years later, here he is at the end of his earthly life, so to speak, and little has changed over that four years. He comes to the temple and finds what appears to be the very same scene. All the money changers, the buyers, the sellers, the animals, all the ruckus is still there. Understand, the temple scene that Jesus walks in on, this would have seemed like, as one pastor put it, the cross between a county fair with even elephant ears on the side, right, and the pit of the stock exchange. This would be a bustling, loud, smelly environment. And to put it on top of that, remember, at this week of the year, in the life of a Jew, everybody's coming to Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands from all over the Mediterranean world and farther, maybe millions, are coming to Jerusalem for this week to celebrate the Passover. It's going to be a zoo. And he walks in the temple and it looks like one. Everybody's coming here to the temple this week to worship God. It's crowded. And then to that, you add to this all the preparations for worship for this Passover week. Because when you come to the Passover, what do you need? You need sacrifices, which means you need animals. And many, of course, couldn't bring their own animals traveling so far, so you'd have to get to Jerusalem and then buy some on hand there so you could worship. But let's say you lived in Jerusalem. You might want to bring your own animal. However, you had to get past the priest who had to inspect it to make sure it was pure, at least according to their criteria. Because understand, if your animal wasn't pure enough or perfect enough by the judgment of the priest, then you need to purchase one of their priest-certified animals, pre-approved for sacrifice. And don't think you can buy them with your own corrupted so-called coins that bear Caesar's image on them. No, you'd have to turn in your coins for temple tokens, temple shekels. So there had to be all kinds of money exchanging. You know, it's like the old arcades I used to go to as a kid. And they have the change machines. You put in a dollar, but you don't get out four quarters. You get four arcade tokens that are worthless. You can't use them anywhere else except in their video games, right? Well, it's kind of like that here. There's a proprietary control over everything, over all the pieces going on here. There's a worship monopoly, and it's filling the leaders in the merchants' pockets. So again, here's what he sees as he walks in the temple. The doors bust open, so to speak, or he's out in this courtyard, and he hears animals, negotiations, bartering, baying, cooing of the doves. It sounds like a loud marketplace, and apparently Jesus is not too happy about this. I'll say, right? 
He takes over the temple, momentarily halting the whole enterprise. Again, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. Pigeons were the least expensive sacrifice. It's what the sacrifice the poor would make because they couldn't afford the larger animals. And you can see it had a hint here. The poor are being preyed upon. But you've got it all wrong. He comes in the temple to say, you've missed it. And in this way, Jesus, you could say, he doesn't really come to cleanse the temple. He does that. As much as though he comes to condemn the temple. Now for what? What what have they missed? Where have they gone so wrong? Well, he tells us. Like a lawyer bringing evidence, he brings the book of the law. He brings the evidence of Scripture to convict. Look at verse 13. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You've missed it. You've been all wrong. You have corrupted, you've perverted the very purpose and reason my temple's here. My temple's here so people can pray to God, so they can worship God. Look around. I don't find much prayer going on here. I find money changing, bartering, greed, extortion, taking advantage of others. I don't see the needy calling on God. I see the needy being taken advantage of. Instead of being a place where people come to pray, what does he find? He finds a place where robbers live. You make it a den of robbers, a hideout for the wicked. When he says, my house should be called a house of prayer, that's a quote from Isaiah 56, looking forward to the day when even all the nations, all the needy will come and find mercy at the temple of God. But he says, you've made it a den of robbers. And this too is an Old Testament quote. See, God has condemned the so-called worship going on in the temple many times before. Many times it's been dubbed the hub of hypocrisy. And he does so once more. But we need to see where this quote comes from. We need to take in the full context. Turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah. Go back in your Old Testament and go to the prophet Jeremiah. If you've got a paper Bible still, you know, kind of flip it halfway open. You're probably in Psalms. Go right a little ways, you eventually hit Isaiah, and then next is Jeremiah. If you got Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Just go back one book. And here we are, Jeremiah chapter 7. And as you're getting there, just to set the context again of this prophet Jeremiah, he was a doomsday prophet. He's called the weeping prophet. He was foretelling God's certain judgment upon God's people, even the judgment on the temple. In what for? Well, we'll find it here. But it's this. Their religion was superficial. It was hypocritical. Their hearts were far from God. Now in this episode, as we turn to Jeremiah 7, the Lord calls Jeremiah to actually go right into the temple. And he has a message for them from God. Namely, to amend their ways. You've got to repent. You've got to turn. And you see that in verse 3. But then he adds these words. He says, Do not trust, and this is verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. He tells them to repent, and he says, But don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's going on here? 
He's calling them to amend their ways and repent, but their response is, but we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. How does this work? See, Jesus, or excuse me, Jeremiah is going throughout all of Israel, and he has this message. Listen, God's not pleased with you. You need to repent, or else he's going to come and judge us all. And to that word of warning, what's their reply? It's not humility. It's not repentance. It's what? Oh, tut, tut, don't worry. Look, the temple of the Lord is here. God is with us. He's for us. He loves us. We worship him. Look, I have proof positive. We got the temple right here. God would never judge his own people. He would never judge his temple. We're on his team. He loves us too much. And temple's proof. Well, the Lord had some more words for them. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8 now. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You were using the temple like a, like a lucky charm. You were using it like a rabbit's foot. You, you were using it superstitiously that it's going to somehow get you out of the trouble you're calling you to. Again, going on, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations still. What is that? Oh, that's hypocrisy. What's the problem? These worshipers who all day, or you might say the other six days of the week, they go about seeing if they can break every one of God's commands. You see that list in verse 9? That's straight out of the Ten Commandments. Steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to all other gods. They go around all week breaking all the commands of God, and then they show up on a Sunday, or show up in the temple in this case, to then make a few sacrifices and dream that they are delivered and God's merciful to them, that they are delivered from sin and judgment. And notice the end of verse 10, only to go on doing all these abominations. They have no intent to change. They're not humbled about their sin. They've not repented. They live however they want. And then they come to to the temple to say some magic words of confession, hocus pocus, almost literally, right? To hear words then, oh, you're forgiven, you've been delivered. But why? So they can be changed? No, so they can just go out and indulge in more sin again under the safety of these magic words and superstition. And here's the point. Here's where he boils it down. Instead of being a place where sinners pray and are humbled, repent and find mercy, here's the conclusion, verse 11. We get to our quote finally. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. A den, that's a hideout, a hideout for sinners to be safe, to then strike out again and rob and steal and indulge their sin. And the Lord will have none of it. He will have none of the hypocrisy. He sees it. He's not fooled by their play-acting worship. Now, such temptations can easily surface in our own hearts, can't they? We come to church. We come into worship. 
and we're just shuffling through the motions. You know, our heart's not in it. We're not engaged. We sit through the sermon. We mouth a few songs. Maybe we kind of sing, sing the one we really like. We make some small talk with a couple friends from our fellowship group, and then we go to lunch, and we call it worship. Now, hear me. This tension, this battle in the heart where between here's what's going on the outside and yet here's what my heart feels like on the inside, that it feels dead but I'm pretending to be alive. At least that tension, that's a normal struggle of the Christian life. It's not strange even for a Christian to feel that, but the issue is what are you going to do about it? Are you going to continue just going through the motions? Or are you going to fight for joy and spiritual life in Christ? Because like what we noted last week, the problem isn't that the sermon is just too boring, though I'll work on that. Leave that aside for a second. The problem isn't that our classes are not interesting to you or that the fellowship is not personal enough or not engaging enough or not warm enough or whatever. Where is the problem? Where does it first reside? Right in you. And I say that for all of us here. Be confronted this morning. See the deadness of your heart apart from Christ's work. Feel that indeed, humble yourself before the Lord to say, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That's where we need to be in our dependence on Him. And if that's really where you are, confess that to Him. But engage your heart after this. Remember, Christ died for sinners. But He died not merely to forgive your sin, just to put it away. He did do that. But He died to be in fellowship with you. He had died to engage you, that you would love him and adore him and to see how merciful he is and to live in obedience to him. Charge your heart for worship by prayer and remembering the gospel, all that he's done. You do that, that's like a spiritual jumpstart for your heart to be changed and moved to worship. Next, we come to selfish worship. Another way that our worship can be corrupted. Verses 13 to 17. See, the trouble is, even as we come to worship, it can so quickly become a selfish thing. We, we put the focus really on right on ourselves. Perhaps as odd as it seems, actually worshiping ourselves. Now, the Jewish leaders, to go back now to Matthew 21, they serve as the chief examples of such corrupted worship such that we find they're standing right against Jesus and all that He's doing in the temple. Now, why? Because it's not according to their plan. It's not according to their rules. It's not by their will, and it's not in agreement and cahoots with them. And so in their selfish pride, think self-righteousness, that they are right in themselves, they cannot even imagine or entertain the thought they might be wrong. And that means your worship is corrupted. Now, to be fair to these Jewish leaders for a moment, the kind of things Jesus is up to here in the temple, they run quite counter to whatever they might have been expecting. First of all, he does the miraculous. He heals the blind and the lame. Look at verse 14. 21, 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's a bit unusual. And certainly that would have been a shock to the priests and scribes. More than this, the priests and scribes, they're not too familiar with the blind and the lame. They don't get near those people. And actually God's law commanded in Leviticus 21, the blind and lame could never serve as priests or be in the holy places of the temple. 
And yet Jesus is having them flock in there as he heals them and makes them pure. But they were not only offended at these healings, but add to this, now we go on to verses 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and they saw the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, now they were indignant. They've had enough. (laughs) They're turning and now raging at Jesus. That's curious to me, isn't it? But I think it exposes where their hearts are at. The thing that prompts them, that, that draws such ire out of them, was not everybody getting kicked out of the temple. But what was it? The praises of some little kids. That's like the straw that breaks the back, so to speak. Such that they they call on Jesus and rebuke him to then silence those kids. Don't you hear what they're saying? And what are they saying? But Hosanna to the son of David. The children are echoing the the welcoming cries of the crowds as Jesus walked in to Jerusalem or rode the donkey into Jerusalem the day before in the triumphal entry. They're saying the same. Hosanna, son of David, save us. Save us, promised king. Now, why did this bother the Jewish leaders so much? Perhaps it was that some of the these miracles and the praises, they're starting to make a scene. Maybe the Romans will get ear of this. Maybe, maybe they'll come in and take back over the temple or something. Maybe they're afraid of that. We do know for sure from Matthew 27, verse 18, that they're jealous of Jesus, and this only adds to it. But most of all, and as the chapter unfolds, this gets reiterated over and over. You know what this is going to mean, the kind of things Jesus is doing that's not according to their plan? That means things have to change. And you know what that means? Because they were the ones in control. What does that mean? They've been wrong. They've been wrong about the temple. They've been wrong about Jesus. And they're finding they are wrong even about themselves. Whatever the case, the children's voices just push them over the top. Quiet them, as if to say, quiet them. Only God should be praised in here. Jesus, you should know better. And then look at Jesus' audacious response. Verse 16. Again, they said to him, Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Oh, yes. (laughs) Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. Understand, that would have hit these Hebrew scholars like a theological Mack truck. Here, Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. And he had asked them, have you never read? And the point is, oh, of course they've read that. They probably have it memorized and recite it in Hebrew verbatim to him. They knew it all. Again, they knew what it said. They knew what it meant. And what did it mean? God God has ordained that even the weak, the little children, would give praise to God to silence God's loud enemies. But here's the kicker. Here's the thing that would have hit them so hard. Jesus applies Psalm 8 to himself. Out of the mouths of infants, you have prepared praise and worship adoration. In other words, listen, guys, I hear those children praising my name even in the temple. And you know what? That's the way it's supposed to be. Go read Psalm 8 if you haven't. God ordained for me. God ordained praise for me, God, in the temple, even by children and babies. 
It's right for me, he's saying, to be praised in my own house. I am God. And with this word, their selfish, self-righteous worship that could never be wrong, so they thought, those ideas are obliterated. Jesus had to come in there and cleanse the temple because the worship of it was empty. And now having cleansed it, he's rightly restored the praises he deserves there. But this means that you, Jewish leaders, you religious types, you temple leaders, that means you missed it. You need to repent. You need to see you're wrong. You need to join the babies and children and praise me. But instead of repenting and acknowledging their sinful ways, they wanted to kill him. Mark's gospel records that right after Jesus cleanses the temple, we read this, Mark 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him. Their pride, their selfishness wouldn't allow them to be wrong. It had to be their way. Understand, when that's going on in your relationship with God, something is really, really wrong. If you cannot humble yourself before God, before His Word, before His will? If you can't be confronted by His counsel, by His construction, if you can't be confronted by His people, then whatever you're doing in church, you're no longer worshiping God. You now worship and live for yourself. You're your own God. You are your own master. And that can show itself, that can be alive and well Sadly, in your heart, even though it looks like all kinds of religious observance and devotion and passion on the outside, because you know everyone's looking. That or you think you can pull the wool over God's eyes, but he says, no, I see it all. I mean, think about the Jewish leaders. They had a passion for God. Paul talks about in Romans, they have a zeal for God. They worshiped. They had rituals. But like the Pharisee that Jesus speaks of and Luke chapter 18, remember that? A Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray. And when the Pharisee prayed, he didn't pray to humble himself before God. Do you remember the kind of things he prayed for? He didn't come asking for mercy, like the tax collector, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. That was nowhere on his lips. What did he come to to the temple to pray about? To exalt himself, to worship himself, to remind himself how great he is and remind God how lucky he is to have him on his team. Proud worship exalts yourself. Humble worship, confessing worship, repenting worship exalts Jesus. Because that's the kind of worship that realizes when it comes to you and God, you've got no business being here. But you can come in boldness because of the work of Christ. Praise the name of Christ the Savior, the Savior of the impure, the Savior of the blind, the Savior of the lame, the Savior of the weak. The Savior of children. That's true worship. Be warned, lest you also have fruitless worship. Verses 18 to 19. If running out the merchants of the temple showed us just how twisted their worship must have been, being that he had to take it all over, Jesus gives us another picture to illustrate what this corrupted worship is like. And what is it like? It's like a fruitless fig tree. Verses 18 and 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, Jesus became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it. Now stop right there. So Jesus is hungry. 
and he's looking for fruit. He's looking for something to eat. But curiously, Mark's gospel notes that this is not the time of year to find figs on trees. So if Jesus was hungry, why would he go up to a fig tree then? Was he not aware that figs were out of season? I think he was rather quite aware. Why do I think that? One, well, he's God. He made fig trees. I think he knows when they bloom and fruit. And two, just if you're growing up in Palestine, you would know the time for figs. You'd see it every year of your life. Well, then why would Jesus do this then? Why would he go to a tree that he knows doesn't have any fruit? Yes, he was hungry, but he's not just hungry for fruit of the fig tree. He's looking for something else. In other words, he's here to teach an object lesson. He's here to teach what corrupted worship looks like and to give you a picture of it in this tree. So as he approaches the fig tree, what does he find? Verse 19 again, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. In other words, there's no fruit, there's no figs, only inedible leaves. See, with its green leafy branches, just going by appearance alone, or if you saw it from afar, it looks alive. You might assume, oh, it might have fruit. This is a great candidate for life-giving fruit. Look how alive the tree looks. Only as you get very close and look, it's actually barren. It looks like one thing, but it's actually another. That's the point. And for its lack of fruit, the tree receives Christ's curse. Verse 19 in full. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fruit fig tree withered at once. The tree was cursed and died because it didn't have fruit. He judged the fruitless fig tree with one powerful word. But again, understand, this is no accident. This isn't happenstance. Jesus is orchestrating this whole event, again, to teach something, to to say to all to Israel, to all of those going to the temple, if you don't bear fruit, you too will be cursed. Because notice, as you keep going through chapter 21, the notions of fruit or fruitlessness persist in this chapter. Go ahead and look down to verse 34. Here, Jesus is telling a parable about a landowner, and he's looking for fruit from his vineyard. But he has these farmers who are supposed to cultivate the vineyard and collect the fruit and give at least some of it to him. Only the farmers don't do that. Instead, they start killing all of the messengers off, and they even kill off the landowner's own son. And so what's going to happen? The landowner's going to judge them. And hear how he's going to judge them. Hear the word of fruit in it. Look at verse 41. And they said to them, He, the landowner, will put those wretches, those miserable farmers, to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will do what? Who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Who will bear the fruits of a changed life. And just in case the imagery of this parable was too obtuse for the Jewish leaders, Jesus makes the point explicit, looking ahead now to verse 43, which reads, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, Israel, and given to a people producing its fruits. He's coming looking for fruit. He's looking for a changed life. He's not just looking for leaves of worship. He wants change from the root. He condemns only for show religion. 
He condemns hypocritical religion that shows out devotion, but the heart isn't in it. Well, how do you know? How do you know if the heart's in it or not? How do you know if it's genuine or true? Well, does it bear fruit? Does it bear the fruits of a changed life? Do do we have the fruits of repentance? And so you get this. What you're doing in worship, whatever songs you're singing, whatever checks you're writing, so to speak, whatever devotion you're giving to God in your life, but if your life's not changed, whatever you're doing in church, it's not worship, whatever it is. At least not the worship of God. If you don't have fruit, if you're not changed, you're not regenerate, you don't know God, if you can routinely hear His Word and not be confronted and changed by it, that means you don't know Christ. You don't know the Holy Spirit's power. You're receiving the water of the gospel rain, so to speak, but it never produces anything. never changes you. So in the words of Hebrews, you're now near to being cursed. It's another picture of that tragic case that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount as he brought it to rap. Remember that? He concluded this way. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They have the right theology. They have the right praise songs. They, they say Jesus is Lord. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not just what you say. It's not what just comes out of your mouth. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, praise Jesus. I can sing the most passionate worship songs. But do you do His will? Do you obey Him? Christianity is not a two-step or two-tiered religion. You cannot have Jesus be your Savior and not be your Lord. He's a whole package. He is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So don't pretend to sing to Jesus or fawn praise to Jesus if you're not going to obey him. That is to bear the fruit of a changed life. And don't take offense at me for saying this. Take it as a warning from Jesus himself. He sees, he saw you at church. He saw you singing with the saints. He went up then up close and looked in your heart to consider your life and what did he find? Will he find any fruit? Will he find the produce of a changed life? Because that's from where pure worship comes from. A changed heart seen in a changed life. Finally, we come to the last aspect of corrupted worship, and it's this, it's faithless worship. Verses 20 to 22. Jesus exposes next here really the root issue of corrupted, fruitless worship. And it's a faithless worship. This is the aha moment. This this is the punchline, the teaching moment with this whole incident with the cursed tree. So let's pick it up. We pick it up back with the disciples and we find them staring slack-jawed at this cursed tree. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? What is going on here? What power is at work here? What's the secret? And now with everyone's interest piqued, let's listen to the master teacher tell us the object lesson. Verse 21, And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, 
If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the victory, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Well, what's the deciding factor? What's the source of such power? It seems like faith, doesn't it? A pure and solid faith. If you have faith and do not doubt. Doubt indicates here a waffling kind of faith. A divided man that flutters from reliance on himself and then he's relying on God. And then he goes back to himself. Indeed, James 1 likens the doubting man to a wave of the sea driven by every wind, rising and falling, unstable in all his ways. And it's true. You rely on yourself. The more you do that, you are not on anything solid. You will rise and fall and you will crash. What's the point? You need something stronger than you. You see, you need something a lot more solid than you. You need a power that's beyond you. And indeed, that's what faith is. It's a removal of reliance on you to relying on God, to resting on God, depending on God. And such that Jesus tells us that kind of reliance, when you rely on the Almighty God, that is powerful. So powerful that, to put it in verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can start talking to mountains and command them to go places. That's crazy. (laughs) And then it's like an advertisement or something. And that's not all. I got more. Look at verse 22. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Why are my prayers not answered? Again, we have this teaching that believing prayer can really do the otherwise impossible. He's taught about this before. But then we'd look and say, well, why are my prayers going unanswered? Do I just need to believe harder? Do I need to have a stronger faith? Believe it more, then it's going to happen. And as we saw before, that's never truly the point, is it? The issue is not how strong your faith is, because then we're talking about you still, aren't we? (laughs) That's kind of the paradox of faith. We're talking about how strong is the object of your faith. The power is not in your faith. The power is in the God you trust. And in that way, genuine faith united with the will of God, that's going to prove unstoppable. Such that it's not a tack on when we say, let your will be done. But that's what we're resting on. And yet still, why? Why might our prayers go unanswered? Well, apparently it's not yet the will of God. And could it be maybe the things you're asking for are not the right things? Are you asking them with the wrong motives? That's what James says in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You might piously, devotedly, humbly ask things from God. But are they for His glory or for yours? Are they for your comfort, your passions? Are you praying for His will to be done or for yours? If so, that's not reliance on God. That's a trust in you. That's a faithless worship. And that kind of prayer changes nothing. It hasn't even changed you, that kind of faithlessness. Now, we have one more observation to make, because we need to take note of the context here. Review it with me. Let's go back to verse 21, because he says something similar in other places, but he hasn't said it right here, and so let's look at it here. Again, verse 21 reads, Truly I say to you, if you've 
Have faith and do not doubt. You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, curious, but take it up and throw it into the sea, it will happen. Now, where is Jesus? He's been on the way back to Jerusalem. He's basically in the shadow of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, it's called. God's holy hill. Hear Jesus' comment in light of that. When he says, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, that's going to happen. Now, what they might then be thinking is, why would anyone pray for that? Why would anyone do that? The temple's how we worship God. That's how we go meet with God. That's how we do our worship stuff that we do. Take that away, and what do we have? How can I make my sacrifices? How can I do my deeds of worship and devotion if you take the temple away? But again, what has Jesus been teaching us? That what is the heart and the crux of genuine worship? It's not found in devotion to rituals. That's not the secret sauce. It's not found in superficial devotion to external things. It's not something that you can conjure up and do on your own, really. True worship comes from a discredit of you and a reliance on God. True worship comes from relying on His power. That's what faith is. It's His power, not yours. That God could do what you never could, the impossible, namely to bring you a sinner to be at peace with Him, such that you don't need a temple anymore. Isn't this what the cross teaches us? That it's all of Him and not of you? As He hangs there on the cross, He hangs there, Bearing your sin as he's taking and absorbing the wrath of God, what did you do? As he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did you do with it? If you were a disciple, you would have ran away. He's forsaken. The answer is clear. What is being done? He's doing it. And he's doing the work of dying for your sins, paying the penalty if you trust him. He's being forsaken so you would never have to be, but he does it for you. That's faith. That's the gospel. He does all the work himself. He cries out because he did it. It's finished. And then he gives up his spirit. And then we read this next in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, as if heaven grabs the veil that separates the holy and the profane and rips it apart. Why? Because we were so holy? Because our songs were so loud? No, but because my son died and paid for the penalty of your sins. That's why we draw near with full assurance of faith. He is the one who brings us into fellowship with God. But can you trust that he has done it all and there's nothing you can do to add to it? Can you then be confronted by Christ, exposed in your sin, confronted about your tainted worship to only rely on him? To say the cross was enough. It was more than enough. I don't need anything else. I confess and lean on your promises. That's a faith that'll change you. That's a worship that'll bear fruit. That's a worship that comes from a changed heart. Why would we want it any other way? Given what we're learning about our heart, why would you ever turn to yourself? There's no safety there. There is only refuge in the cross. Nothing purifies our worship more than regular remembrance of the cross. So how can we do that? How can we keep the cross front and center? You know the answers to these things. Keep it simple, really. There's nothing magical about it. You need to pray. 
You need to approach God in prayer. Cry out. You, you cry out to him, Lord, I'm prone to wander. I feel it. Bind me by your spirit to your promises. But as you even come to him, again, as we've talked about already this morning, you don't come because you've gone to VCU this week. You don't come because you've read your Bible this week every day. You come because only with boldness by the blood of Christ, period. That'll put the cross front and center. You got to pray. You got to read the word. You got to rest on those promises. You have to get into gospel word, memorize it, chew on it, memorize it, review it, meditate on it. Read other good books that point you to the gospel. If I could point you to one, have mercy on the people in the bookstore. I commend this one to you. Milton Vincent's A Gospel Primer for Christians. Such a good meditation on the gospel in everyday life. Pray, read, fellowship. Surprise. Get with the people that love Jesus and that will remind you about what Jesus has done. Don't just get with Christians, and that was good, just to be with them. But remind one another of Christ. Point each other to the gospel. Be that person to take the spiritual initiative. And finally, with the fellowship of the saints, what else do we get? We get the Lord's table. Don't neglect our assembling together lest you miss that divine ordained remembrance of the gospel at the table. Where we proclaim together, we got no hope except for the Lord's death, and that's it. Because we don't preach our holiness, we don't preach our righteousness, we don't preach our works of devotion, we preach and rest on Christ's curtain-tearing death alone. The cross, then, is our fuel for pure worship. Remember the cross. And let's praise Him for it. Let's pray together. Indeed, O oh God, we confess that we are sinners. We are prone to wander, and we feel it. We are inclined to rest in what we can do to find our security there, but it may never be. May we rest alone on what You've accomplished by Your death, O oh Christ, for our sin and Your resurrection, that we... We hear these things that we wouldn't sin, but if we, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So clothe us in your righteousness. Accept our meager worship as purified by the righteousness of Christ. Forgive us our sins, but equip us by your mercy to go out and speak and teach sinners the way that there is a way to be right with God. It's not in being holy of ourselves, but it's resting entirely on you. Do that for the glory of Christ and his sacrifice. And it's for his name we pray. Amen.